You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Uh, Heavenly Father, we know that you are our good shepherd, and so we pray that you would lead and guide us and be with us uh, even now as uh, we talk about uh, a heavy uh, issue. Uh, But Lord, we thank you that you have conquered death and the grave and that we have been raised with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, uh, Craig Smalley uh, told me that uh, the title, uh, What Happens When I Die, uh, people thought that meant like what happens when Andrew dies. Uh, and so I guess you're all very excited to see what happens uh, when I die. Um, uh, but not that at all, but actually uh, what happens when uh, you and, and I die. Uh, there are lots of crazy ideas uh, floating around, and for good reason. Uh, the Bible actually doesn't talk in specifics, uh, so, uh, but we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about when we die. But I've been thinking a lot throughout this whole series, and I alluded to this last week, where I wonder if sometimes um, I'm not asking the wrong question. Uh, Think about uh, when you began to consider death. Uh, Most of us probably first encountered death as children when a family member died. Uh, But normally, uh, that family member would have been older. And so you would have thought, when I get old, that's what happens. But I'm not old, so I'm okay. Uh, In fact, uh, my children have now uh, begun to declare uh, the death order in our family, uh, that I'll die, then Mama will die, and then uh, Lily will die, and then Mary Cabell will die, and I will be the only one left, says Ware. And and, and so trying to explain to her that uh, a two-year separation doesn't guarantee a sort of end date uh, for each uh, person in our family, especially for the children. And so as, as children, we, we learned about death. Uh, I was, did y'all ever read the book Bridge to Terabithia? That book actually takes place where I grew up. And so in the fifth grade, they all handed us copies of the book and said, now we're going to talk about death. Uh, and so we, we read that book, and, um, and, and that was kind of my introduction to death. But it actually wasn't very helpful except to say that death was inevitable like taxes, right? You're just going to, this is something you're going to have to deal with one day. And so as I got older, I really didn't give death much of a thought, which is why when we're in our teens and even early 20s, we do really stupid things. Uh, Things that you look back on, especially boys, and think that was really dumb. Like tying bicycles to the back of a car and, and pulling them as fast as we could. Uh, or, and then in the wintertime, we would t- attach sleds to the back of cars uh, and, and do that. It's really a miracle that my brothers and I uh, are, uh, are alive in many ways. And so you're really not thinking that much about death in your teens and in your 20s. But when I was 29, and many of y'all know this, uh, Lauren was pregnant with our first child. She was seven months pregnant with Lily when I was diagnosed with melanoma. And uh, at first they thought it had metastasized, and uh, thankfully it had not metastasized. Uh, But that really was a wake-up call for me because it made me think I'm mortal and that my body actually is is dying. I mean, the weird and morbid reality that every day we're closer to death. uh, But you know what? Even then, 
having melanoma, you know, right from that point on, I, I look like every other eight-year-old at the beach. I've got like the long sleeves and the big hat and, and all that. But it was a little bit like getting a speeding ticket. Now I'm like, woo, I'm out there. And, you know, I'm, I, I, Lauren has to get on me about sunblock and things like that. So even a scare like that didn't make me think, you know, maybe I need to think a little bit more about this. It worked like a speeding ticket in the short term, but I'm back to driving 70 miles an hour on 280 uh, in just a couple months. And so I think that at least for me, and maybe for you, uh, I really started to come to terms with death a little bit more uh, when I started to have children. And um, Lauren and I feeling, you know, doing a will and things like that because we're both going to be on the same airplane. And I don't know what ever happened to that, but I remember my, when I was little, my mom and dad and my grandparents would travel on separate airplanes. Did y'all, did they ever do that? Uh, statistically, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, it doesn't mean a thing. Uh, and yet, uh, they would do that. And so I really had to think uh, what will happen. In fact, uh, Stephen, are you in here? Yeah, Stephen's back in the back. I need to talk to you because Lauren said that she went back uh, to work out our will and said that she put something in it that said, my next wife gets nothing. Um, um, yeah, extra, okay. All right, she, she had inferred, she wanted away anyway. Um, But that really made me start to think uh, about uh, death in, in a way that I hadn't before, especially uh, in light of children. And of course, along the way, uh, I've experienced and you've experienced uh, tragedies where someone, especially someone who is young, uh, has, has died and you've had to grapple uh, with that or the circumstances of a death have been uh, traumatic uh, emotionally. And... So maybe the question is not so much uh, what happens when I die, although that's a really good question to ask. It may be that the question is, how do I get ready to die? Uh, How can I live my life in such a way that I'm not so afraid of death? Uh, Because as Christians, we're we're not meant to fear death. Uh, It doesn't mean that death isn't real and that we treat life flippantly. Uh, but even in, in the church, I think that sometimes we give death uh, too much authority uh, over our lives. I mean, surely uh, we are all going to die uh, one day, but it seems like we spend so much of our life trying to defeat death on our own. I mean, our life expectancy is getting older and older and older, and I have a friend who's a urologist, And he said that he had a 95-year-old patient who was just diagnosed with prostate cancer come into the office and say, all right, doc, how are we going to deal with this? And he looked at him and he said, well, this is kind of Mother's Nature way of saying you can't live forever. I was at the bedside of Grace White, who was the first woman barred to practice law in the state of South Carolina. She was 100 years old, and she had been uh, diagnosed with... uh, colon cancer and it had spread and I was there when the uh, hospitalist came in hospitalist there's a new one the hospitalist came in and uh, said oh I'll come back another time and Grace had never married and said no no no. he's as close to family as I've got he's my pastor please stay and he said well Miss White it's not looking good Um, the the cancer is uh, really uh, taken over the lower part of your abdomen and 
Uh, there really isn't, isn't much hope. And she said, well, what are my options? And the doctor said, we could operate, but you're likely not to survive uh, the operation. And he said, and we could do chemo and or radiation. And he says, but I don't think that's a good idea. And she said, well, why? And he said, well, the side effects. She said, well, what are they? And he said, well, you'll, you'll find yourself fatigued uh, all the time, uh, especially uh, as the day moves on, especially in the afternoons. Uh, you'll find uh, it harder to eat uh, certain foods. Uh, you'll suffer incontinence. And, uh, and you'll start to probably lose uh, your hair as well as your memory. And Grace looked up at him and said, so no change whatsoever. <laughs> well, uh, she got it. Uh, she, she absolutely got it. But, you know, I, I, br- I brought up the, the issue of, in, God, in the class on God's sovereignty of James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of uh, 10th Presbyterian in uh, Philadelphia, where he was having the congregation pray for him that, they would he- that God would heal him of cancer. And it got to the point where he had to be helped into the pulpit, and then he would be brought into the service just to preach, and then he was wheeled into the service just to preach, and he had to be held up at the pulpit uh, to preach, and then his sermons began to get shorter and shorter. And one of his last sermons, it may in fact have been his last, he looked out of the congregation and said, I no longer want you to pray that God would heal me of this cancer, uh, but that, that God would be glorified even in my death. Which, you know, the Christian church has kind of given way in many ways uh, to give death an authority uh, that is not due to death. And so, yes, we do pray uh, for healing. Uh, Yes, we do pray that God would intervene. And yet, for many of us, uh, especially those of us who are Christians, uh, death should not be as daunting uh, a prospect. But the bottom line is, is that we're all really afraid of death. We're afraid of dying. I think it's a legitimate concern, especially as it concerns leaving others behind. I think that the Bible actually speaks to that. Uh, that leaving uh, behind uh, those whom we love, uh, and that's, that's really, really hard uh, and really, really sad. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if they know the Lord Jesus, we are going to see them again uh, face to face. The last church I served, the rector, was very insistent that we write in the memoranda line for the service book what the cause of death was for the funerals that we officiated. Uh, and I didn't do it because I thought it was silly. And so I, when I did Grace White's funeral, uh, the rector said, well, you didn't put cause of death. The lady was 100 years old, so I put really old, exclamation point, uh, under the memorandum. Uh, that, that we're all uh, afraid of death, but those of us especially who live to ripe years, ripe years uh, ought not to be too surprised when death comes along. And so death is, a re- and indeed the church, I don't think, spends as much time talking about death uh, as we ought. Because if you think of our lives in terms of eternity, our time here on earth is a very short blip. And when you think of it that way, what do our lives look like in light of that? Uh, what's important to us? I've never been with somebody on their deathbed who has said, I wish I had another day in the office. 
No one's ever said that. Um, I have had uh, sad moments where I've had people tell me uh, I have no regrets. And actually for me that's sad because we all regret something, don't we? I mean, none of us have looked back on our lives and said, that is exactly how I thought it was going to go. I'm ready. Uh, And then I've been a part of really touching moments where you've seen families uh, reconciled uh, to one another. Death has a way of giving us perspective, but rather than seeing the parent and the child or the sibling or the spouse reconciling on a deathbed, uh, why not reconcile now? Why not reconcile now? Uh, I've... Uh, Joe Warren was a real master uh, at at the pastoral care uh, ministry that he had here. And I thought it took great bravery, and he was public about this. Uh, As you know, toward the end, Joe struggled with his health. And Joe said, you know, I want to retire uh, so that I can enjoy my retirement. I don't want to retire because I have to retire. And what I heard Joe saying, and I think this is what he meant, is He really wanted to spend time with his family, uh, his wife, his children, uh, his grandchildren, uh, in uh, what really he felt like were the prime years of his life while uh, he still could. And how many of us here this morning actually have an even greater opportunity uh, who maybe need to think about death a little bit more, Uh, maybe need to think about it in terms of uh, how we're raising our children, or our marriage, or how we're running our businesses, or how we're living our lives and what we're really investing in. And so thinking about what happens uh, when we die ought to lead us uh, to think about death in, or our lives in light of death uh, right now. And when uh, the Christian uh, is approaching death, Uh, that makes a significant difference. Uh, There's a little book that uh, I'm actually going to get a bunch of copies of. It's a very quick read, and it's about Mark uh, Ashton. Uh, Mark was, uh, I've heard him preach, Uh, Mark was for years the rector of the Round Church in Cambridge, a really old medieval church uh, there uh, in the city center. And it grew so much that they left the Round Church and moved into a bigger church building down the road called St. Andrew the Great. Uh, We call it Stag. Uh, So St. Andrew the Great uh, is where Mark ended up. And uh, Mark tells his story on my way to heaven, uh, facing death with Christ. He talks about uh, his his, uh, watching his mother uh, die. And I want to read the first bit of it. In 2001, my mother visited us in Cambridge and walking to church one Sunday fell and broke her hip. From then on, she died slowly and painfully over the next four and a half years. The pain was not physical so much as psychological as she gradually lost all her freedom. As I watched her die, I prayed that I would not live into a similarly long and though no fault of her own, increasingly incapacitated old age, a burden to my wife and family and an embarrassment to my friends. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. I once said to the church wardens at St. Andrew the Great that I did not want to live to be a problem to those who cared for me. Bad-tempered, irritable, snapping orders at my wife Fiona while she pushed me around in a wheelchair. 
One of the wardens replied that the only change would be the wheelchair. In the spring of 2007, while I was on sabbatical in New Zealand, I first had pains roughly in the area of my gallbladder, which led eventually to going into Addenbrooke Hospital in December 2008 to have the gallbladder removed. But when he went in to do so, the surgeon found cancer, which had invaded the liver, originating in the gallbladder. And then Mark uh, tells the story of how God answered his prayer. Uh, that this uh, youngish man, uh, I believe uh, not even 50, uh, uh, died of cancer. Uh, and he spent, uh, he's written a, a great many things, uh, but I think this is probably the best. You could read it in 10 minutes. Uh, On my way to heaven, facing death with Christ. And he talks about the perspective that death uh, had, uh, had given him and what really became important and how that even changed uh, his prayer life, uh, especially as it concerned uh, his younger children uh, who were also uh, watching their father die uh, in in this moment. And so Mark gives us a powerful testimony of what it looks like to die with faith in Christ. Yes, we're afraid to die because of those that we're going to leave behind. Uh, But Mark rightly, as well as people like James Montgomery Boyce, uh, knew uh, who was in control, that everything was going to be all right, and to give thanks to God for the faith of um, his children, uh, the faith of his wife, uh, his marriage, uh, his children themselves, uh, but that actually having a believing family helped him die a good death. And so he was not afraid of what happened when he died. In fact, he really wasn't worried about all the holes that the Bible provides uh, about what happens uh, when he dies because he knew that he would be delivered and healed of his cancer and that he would be in the presence of the Lord. And so let's now turn uh, with that in mind to understand what we can know about happens when we die, which is going to affect the way that we live now. Well, there are lots of ideas, uh, and I don't, it, it has to be in our culture, because even my young children have said to me that when we die, we become angels. That doesn't happen. Uh, in fact, for us to become an angel would not be good. Uh, it would not be good. Why? Because uh, who does God have uninterrupted, unmediated fellowship with? Us, right? Human beings, uh, because of Jesus Christ, what he's done uh, for us. And so to become an angel would actually to not be to not enjoy uh, the full love and fellowship uh, of God the Father that is ours through Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know uh, where that idea comes from. Uh, it may be uh, one of my favorite far sides is uh, Gary Larson has put a scene of heaven and a scene of hell And in the scene of heaven, it says, uh, welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Uh, And then underneath it says, welcome to hell, here's your accordion. Uh, And um, I mean, maybe, maybe. Uh, And then we're not just all sitting up on clouds and strumming uh, our our harps. Uh, That's not it at all. But let's back up a a little bit. Where do we get uh, ideas of, of heaven? Well, first, let me back it up. 
all of us die. We've established that point, and we all know that that's going to happen. And, you know, looking back at Genesis in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree, tree, um, that little dialogue that Eve has with Satan, uh, one of the things that Eve says is that if they eat of the tree, that they will surely die. Uh, But when they ate of it, did they die? Well, no, not not in a sense, uh, but actually they did die, right? They spiritually died, right? So that they uh, really embody what Paul talks about in Romans, that the wages of sin is what? Is death. And so a wage is something that you've earned. And so because of what we bring to the table, uh, we've earned death. That's our paycheck. We are going uh, to die. And not just die physically, uh, but also to be dead spiritually. Uh, Paul uh, talks about it often, uh, but also uh, this spiritual death uh, that we have, that we have to be brought back to life uh, through Jesus Christ. And so in our lives, we're not just spiritually hindered. We're not just spiritually um, kind of dead. Uh, we actually are completely dead as Lazarus was in the tomb and we need to be called out and given new life in Christ. And when our spirit lives, therefore we will live too in Christ. And so you already are a part of the heavenly church that Hebrews talks about. Uh, you're part of that church uh, triumphant uh, in a sense uh, because that's a spiritual church. So uh, when we die... Uh, there are those that would try to tell us, and I think that they take Paul's and Jesus' words and mince them, that say that, well, we just go to sleep. Uh, we have this, this soul sleep where we have a nice slumber. Now, that's not exactly uh, too... I, I kind of like that idea. Uh, you know, I, I'm tired of hearing young children complain about, why do I have to take a nap? Because there are days when I'm like, I would gladly swap with you. Uh, I could use a nap. Uh, I could use a rest. But that's not really what the Bible talks about. Uh, To be absent from the body is to be present uh, with the Lord, which means that when we die, for those who are in Christ, uh, we go and we are in the presence of the Lord in a place that is biblical and that we often talk about called heaven. We're in a place uh, called heaven. Now, even though our body is in the ground, uh, our soul is with God in, in heaven. Uh, that's where we are. We have a conscious uh, existence. Uh, it's, you know, when someone asks where heaven is, it's not heaven's up there and, and hell's uh, down there. In fact, I think that uh, there's a very fine line between heaven uh, and earth, uh, actually, and uh, that uh, heaven is simply a different uh, existence that's promised to us in the Bible. And that's the language that Jesus uses in John's Gospel, when Thomas says, we don't know the way you're going. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, and then Thomas says, well, how do we know the way unless you show us? And Jesus responds, in my Father's uh, home are many mansions. Now, actually, the word that he uses there is the word that actually could be translated and is more often translated as way station, as a rest stop. So heaven is actually a rest stop onto something greater. And what is that thing that's greater? Well, that's what we're promised in the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, that God is going to do what? That He's going to make a new heaven and a new earth 
or to be more specific, he's going to redeem the earth that we now live on. Right? That he's going to make it new. And what does that mean? It means that this earth will no longer be broken down and be affected by the ravages of sin. And we will be united with our bodies. Uh, it's kind of a it's kind of creepy, isn't it? That one day what's going to happen? We're all going to get up out of the ground. Now we are promised a glorified body. Uh, but let's not think that that means that our glorified body is going to be a version of us in our best shape ever. Uh, you know, it's so funny to me, and you see this in our stained glass windows, that whenever Jesus, um, uh, whenever angels are depicted, how old are they depicted as? 33, because that's how old Jesus was when he died. And so um, Lauren had had a child when I was 33, and I, I, she got pregnant and I got pregnant too, uh, if that makes sense. So I don't really want to be 33. Uh, in my glorified body. But basically, we will be given a glorified body uh, and uh, we will be physically present uh, in a physical place uh, that is the new Jerusalem uh, that God promises us. And in that, uh, it will be uh, a different existence but will be somewhat like life uh, here uh, on earth. Uh, It will be all worship. And by worship, I don't mean... It's just one great big service, although in some way it is one great big service, uh, but that in that everything that we do, as it's supposed to be here on earth, will be worship. I mean, that's the way it's supposed to be now, isn't it? And I really struggle with using certain words like worship to talk about what we do on Sunday mornings because it's part of what we do on Sunday mornings, but it's not all of what we do on Sunday mornings. So even when people say things like, and I'm big on preaching, uh, people say, well, our sermon is worship. That's kind of not. It's it's kind of not worship. Uh, And when I often say worship, people think, if I said, let's stand and have a time of worship, what would you think we were about to do? Sing, right? And so when we sing, we often say we're worshiping to the Lord. Uh, But think about hymns like, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Are you singing that to God? Stand up yourself, man, you know, Jesus. Now, that would be silly. Who are you singing to when you sing stand up, stand up for Jesus? One another. You're actually singing to one another. You're not worshiping one another. You're singing to one another. And when you stand up to say the creed, what are you, who are you saying the creed to? One another. One another. You're not saying it to God. That's why you say, I believe. It's a declaration of faith that you're making not just with the body, but also to uh, the body. And so worship is something that we do, and we say that in the preface to uh, the morning prayer service, that we gather uh, to praise, to give praise to God, which takes on many forms, including singing, uh, but to hear His holy word, uh, to pray. Uh, so actually, uh, worship is only one teeny tiny part of it, and it's really hard for me to find a word that actually encapsulates all that we're doing on Sunday, because Sunday is not the only day that we worship. In fact, all of our lives should be worship. Uh, I have a friend who was telling me the story of a, uh, of a really active and vibrant church, but it was in a residential neighborhood. And Sunday mornings, things are pretty quiet, but par- parking is really hard. And so parishioners would often park illegally 
uh, even blocking residential driveways in the neighborhood. Well, this, as the church continued to grow, the neighbors had had enough of it and finally called the police. And the police began to issue tickets for people parked illegally. And what, did, of course, did the parishioners say when they caught the police writing the tickets? But we're here to worship, right? We're here because we're for church. How can you write me a ticket? I'm in church. Now, I ask you, what, what would be true worship? Going into the building or loving your neighbor as yourself? That actually would be the act of worship, of not double parking somebody's driveway. Right? Because worship, worship, is giving God uh, His worth. And so, actually, to worship God is to obey Him, right? to conform, uh, for the Holy Spirit to make us more and more into His likeness. That's what real worship uh, is, uh, to worship God in spirit and in truth. And that's what marks heaven, a sinless, beautiful, wonderful existence. Now, let's talk about hell. Uh, A lot of people, uh, you know, hell's not something that we really uh, like to talk about. Uh, And we've talked about it before, especially when the the junior high kids come in for confirmation class. And so if you want a prolonged discussion on hell, you can go back and listen to that class. Uh, But uh, hell exists. Uh, It's a real place. Uh, It is a a place uh, where God is... Uh, is absent. And so even people here on earth that are unbelievers actually experience God's grace. That's why Jesus says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. And so they experience uh, common grace uh, here in this world. Uh, But hell is where God is not. Now, incidentally, I believe that a lot of people uh, that, that are in hell, in fact, all of them, actually would prefer it. They'd actually prefer to be there uh, and be their own Lord uh, in a way that they're not in heaven. Uh, C.S. Lewis does take some pretty significant liberties in The Great Divorce, but it's a good book. And it talks about people... Uh, and in some ways, it's jumps, he jumps off of the story, which is, I think, somewhat informative of Lazarus and Dives. Do you know the story? Not Lazarus who was raised from the dead, uh, but Lazarus, the poor man, uh, who's, who the dogs licked his wounds when he was set at the gate of the wealthy man. And the wealthy man passed by him year after year after year, didn't give him a thing, and then they both died. And the rich man is in hell, uh, and uh, Dive, uh, Lazarus is in heaven. And even there, uh, what does uh, the rich man say to Lazarus? Give me something to drink. I mean, how ridiculous is that scene? Here's a man in hell telling the guy in heaven, go fetch me some water. Go, go do this. I mean, total lack of, of perspective uh, and understanding and living under his own condemnation. But hell, too, is necessary for God's justice. I mean, a lot of people, uh, and understandably so, I don't like the idea of hell. I don't want to see people go to hell. But if we're really honest, there are some people we want to go to hell. 
right? Hell is for some people. Uh, some people we know and others we don't. And so I talked to someone the other day who said, look, I just can't believe that, that God would send anybody to hell. Well, one, uh, them going to get hell is their own choosing. Uh, but two, um, I don't know, let's name some bad people. How about Hitler? Well, okay, he can be in hell. Well, what about Stalin? What about, I mean, really, really bad uh, folks are the, are the, you know, somebody who did something dastardly uh, in your hometown. Well, okay, maybe hell's for those really bad people. Uh, but you see, that's the problem is because then we start thinking, well, then that means that God grades on a curve. And then in order to go to hell, you have to be really bad. Uh, but what would that mean for heaven? That you'd have to be really, really good? Uh, no, what you find is that heaven is populated by sinners and hell is populated by self-righteous people. Th that's the way it normally, uh, and I think biblically, uh, shakes, uh, shakes out. Uh, but next uh, Sunday, I'm actually going to be preaching on hell uh, a little bit uh, because uh, Paul talks about in Romans of loving your enemies. Uh, and uh, when you love them, it's heaping burning coals on their head. And he says, uh, and, and, don't, uh, and don't try to exact vengeance because vengeance belongs to God, which means what? Nobody's going to get away with anything. Right? At the end of the day, no one's going to get away with anything. Now, when it comes to the judgments, like what that means, uh, when we stand before the great throne and when that happens, I'm not exactly sure what the timeline is. I don't know. Uh, but what we do know is that there's going to come a day when we are going to stand before the judgment seat and all of our lives will be laid out before us and we'll be called to give an account for our lives. I hate that idea. Uh, it, it, it really uh, it, it, it makes me want my body to get back in the grave. Uh, I really don't, I don't like that prospect. Uh, but in the midst of that, as our guilt is being laid before us, and uh, nobody is going to question God's justice. No one's going to say, uh, but there's an excuse. Uh, all will be found guilty, except what? Uh, right as the sentence is about to be passed, the verdict read out, uh, Jesus steps into the scene and says, it's all true, and yet I've paid it all. I've paid it all. I've taken on uh, the guilt and the punishment that was required uh, of this individual. And so, even though they're guilty as sin, uh, in the eyes of the Father through Jesus, uh, God uh, looks upon us uh, through the lens of Jesus and sees us as his child. And so we do enjoy uh, perfect fellowship uh, with him. And so if we have the assurance that we're going to be with Jesus, if we're going to behold him face to face, uh, that is something that ought to affect our lives now and the way that we live. It ought not to cause us to fear death too much. Uh, I don't think it's morbid. I mean, I have convers I mean, my kids are already asking about death and are wanting to have the conversation. And so we talk about it. Uh, where's Grandma Dot? What's she doing right now? Uh, what is, 
when am I going to die? What's going to happen uh, when, uh, when I die? And in order to be able to answer that question, you've got to answer all the questions that come before it, which is, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus and how that affects our life uh, here on earth so that we might behold him on that last great day. Okay, that was a very surfacey sketch, uh, but questions, comments, concerns? question, where is, Dot, where is Grandma Dot and what's she doing right now? Um, I say uh, Grandma Dot is, is with the Lord Jesus in heaven, and, uh, and I do believe uh, that there's nothing in the Bible that would discount that, uh, that would discount what I'm about to say, and that she sees us. Uh, I think that she can see us. Uh, I, I don't think that she's uh, coming down and interacting. I can talk about ghosts and stuff like that on another occasion, uh, not in Sunday school because it's just... It's not worth it. But, um, but she's, she's with the Lord and that we're going to see her one day. And I do talk about how Grandma Dot is with Jesus because of Jesus, not because Grandma... Now, Grandma Dot was the nicest person on the face of the earth. Uh, but then after she died, uh, some of her family told me that she really wasn't that nice when she was younger. Uh, I, got, I got the best of her. Uh, I got the best of her. Uh, so it's not because Grandma Dot was nice and sweet, but because... Uh, because of Jesus. Now, the opposite side of that question is, um, and it's so funny to me because, you know, so many funerals I go to uh, make the assumption that the deceased is definitely in heaven. And just as I wouldn't assume that anybody has gone to hell, uh, I wouldn't necessarily, other unless I've heard from them, um, and by that I mean sometimes I do funerals for people whose faith is unknown to me. And so I don't want to lead people to believe that, oh, they were a good enough guy. I mean, I talk about faith in Jesus, and I pray that this person put their trust in his grace and his love. And if he did, we are going to see that person one day. And we Now, uh, admittedly, I, I normally don't say, and if he didn't, you'll never see him again unless you go to hell. Um, uh, I don't say that. But it's so funny to me that the most evangelical churches have the least amount of hell in their funerals. Like if somebody dies at a, at a super-duper evangelical church, there's, all, there's no consideration that this person uh, was anything but uh, regenerate. And we've all been to the funerals where somebody gets up, especially the preacher, and starts prattling on about the person, and you're like, that wasn't them. That, that wasn't them. Uh, and, uh, and the worst thing that a preacher can do is to act like they know the deceased when they don't. I definitely never do that. that that's, uh, that's not true. And I will often admit, I just didn't know this person, but what I do know is Jesus. And so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about, uh, about him. Sort of in, in talking um, to children about death, um, my daughter has asked the same thing, you know, where's granddaddy? And I've answered in the exact same way. He's with the Lord Jesus. And then um, I sort of t started talking about what that would probably be like based mm -hmm. on what the Bible says and how wonderful it is and he's not lonely and he's not sick and all of that. Right. And so then she said, well, I want to die. And I said, yeah. well, get in line, you know. <laughs> And um, anyway, and she, I said, but it's not our decision. You know, it's, it's 
God's, it's Jesus's decision right. when we go. And so just in sort of talking to her then at that point about, well, what is life? You know, so if that, if it's so great there, yep. then what is life here? So I know what I said to her, but I'd, I'd love to hear what your, what your thoughts are on, on that part. Yeah, we live life in light of death. I mean, Jesus talked about, remember the man who decided one day, I'm going to build this barn and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And what did Jesus say? You fool. You're going to do all that, and tomorrow your life is going to be demanded of you. And so I don't think Jesus was saying just sit around and wait for death, but what he was saying is think about how you're spending your life. And uh, one, you've got Paul saying, uh, whether I live or whether I die, I'm with the Lord. To be here means what? That those people who were, you know, love ought to be a powerful motivator. If there are those friends and family who are near to us that do not know the Lord Jesus, we ought to be motivated to share the gospel with them. I mean, how, I mean it is not a, a welcome prospect for me to know that, uh, that they won't be in heaven. And not for my own selfishness, although in part, because I'll want to be able to see them. Uh, but how many of us really just kind of say, well, I, I hope God will sort that out. When the Bible tells us that God uses us as the means to preach the gospel to the world. And so this life really is a platform uh, for the gospel, and we really need to think about how kingdom-oriented we are. I mean, there's the big video online uh, that is really moving and incredible. Uh, it was back in the early 80s, maybe late 70s, of The Englishman. Did y'all see that? It was a television show where this guy was just invited to be a part of the audience, and the audience was made up of Jews that his actions had saved during World War II. And he had never met these people in his life. And so they all stood up one by one, they, I mean, well over 100 people, and began to tell their story about how he had used them, how God had used him to save their lives. And pretty remarkable. And, um, and in the same way, you know, think about that in terms of spiritual lives. You know, the, think about the person who shared the gospel with you the first time or was with you when you came to know the Lord Jesus and how grateful for their courage, but moreover for their love uh, for you. And so uh, I'm not about re reducing people to spiritual statistics, but the story of that man saving people's physical lives uh, and he was driven by his Christian faith uh, to do that uh, but also understanding them that, yeah, there, there's a spiritual dimension to that. Uh, and so I think living our lives for Jesus is really, really uh, important. And that's the whole idea of worship. That's the whole idea of worship. So while we're here on earth, what is our one great end? To worship him. To worship him. Okay. Well, I know everybody's excited now. Uh, on my way to heaven, uh, I'm going to buy a bunch of these, and, uh, and I um, am going to give them away. Um, and I would encourage you to take as many as you would like, and also uh, to, uh, to hand them out uh, to someone uh, who uh, may have questions about death and who may themselves be facing death. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. 
Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.